Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Typically, when people think about modesty, their minds immediately go to what a person wears and arbitrary preferences rather than the heart motivation, the reason you wear what you wear, the heart that influences those external choices. Perhaps when I just said modesty, your impulse was similar. I would imagine that if you talk to five of your friends said, hey, let's have a conversation about modesty, and they're going to think about externalities, behavior, specifically clothes. One of them might say, oh, great, now you're going to tell us what to wear. Now, if that is your impulse, well, that just means that you're normal. I think that's how most everybody would think. But I do want to talk about modesty, but my goal here is a little bit different than mandating universal clothing stipulations. I can't do that, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to suggest what you should wear. That sounds a little arrogant to me, if not also naive. What I want to do here over the next few moments is I want to focus on something that's actually more vital. You see, there is a sequence here, and the sequence always begins in our hearts, not on our backs, what we wear. The genesis of all our thoughts, the source of all our thoughts, our attitudes, words, and behaviors, it always begins in our hearts. If we just talk about what we wear, there could be, we could make the legalistic mistake and just start mandating clothing preferences without even considering a heart's motivation. And so before we talk about how we adorn our bodies, What if we talk about what motivates the how and the why we adorn our bodies? Now, this is a relevant subject. There's no doubt about that. Wearing clothes are about as everyday as you can get. From 2 to 12 years of age, a child will put on clothes approximately 4,000 times, if I did math that correctly. Parents have a dozen or so years to teach their children how to connect a modest Christian worldview to their daily living. And that doesn't just apply to the clothes they wear, but the home is a laboratory, and and the family, the parents specifically, they are the ones that run that laboratory. And they do have 10 or 12 years to where they can do that foundational work, dealing with those heart issues. Teaching modesty is our always recurring opportunity to envision our children. I mean, imagine this. If we can learn a new habit in 21 days, how much more our children will have entrenched thinking about modesty. Now, that could be for good and that, or that could be for evil. Long before becoming teenagers, years, more than a decade to learn a habit. But like all of our behaviors, learning modesty begins in our hearts, not on our backside. What we wear on the outside reflects who we are on the inside, which is the parents' call to target the hearts of the children first. What heart-developing character traits should a person have regarding modesty? If you're going to connect modesty, the clothes you wear, to the heart, then what are those heart 
character traits. What are those things that you want to instill in your child? Perhaps it would be a good thought experiment to have a conversation right now with someone. Talk about the connection between the heart and the behavior, or in this case, the heart and the clothes. Talk about the primacy of the sequence, that we want to deal with the heart first, therefore it's essential to lay down that foundation, that we want to instill character traits in the children so that then when they are teenagers, they already have that heart foundation. And so what would be those character traits? Knowing what character traits you want to instill in a child's heart is of utmost importance because those characteristics will influence all of their external behavioral decisions, not just what they wear. Everything flows out of the heart. Think about what I'm suggesting in an inward way. Teach them how to behave or what they should wear without addressing their hearts. What about if you did that? Well, you know intuitively that that would be a bad approach. That approach actually is legalism, where you dress up the outside but give no consideration to what is going on on the inside. That would be a horrible disservice to anyone. Now, it's much wiser to train their little hearts with Christ-like character than mandating rote choreographed clothing choices. Now, I suppose it's easier. In fact, I know it's easier. Just tell them what to do. Just tell them what to wear without connecting it to the heart, without laying that foundation of a, a sound, biblical, Christocentric uh, character. We want our children to learn essential character traits before focusing on their behaviors. Let me give you a few of those character traits, like respect, honor, gratitude, wisdom, discretion, and humility. Those were a few essentials that we wanted to instill in the little hearts of our children. We saw these qualities as foundational early on, knowing that we would come alongside them as they grew older, teaching them how to think about and how to build biblical behaviors on top of those attributes, including modesty. Beauty is external. But respect, honor, gratitude, wisdom, discretion, humility, they're rooted in the heart. And if we did not begin in the right place, foundationally speaking, our children could end up like pigs with gold rings stuck in their snouts. I mean, it looks like something on the outside, but the inside has no transformation. And so the all-important question is, where do you begin teaching your children those traits? Well, the starting place is always in the parents' hearts. Perhaps you were thinking, well, we want to teach the children these character traits. Yes, you do. But the teacher, or the parent in this case, they must internalize and practice the teaching that they hope to export to their children. You see, parents are in the export business. We give them what we have. We export to them who we are. By the way, there is no other option. We will, as parents, export to our children who we are, regardless of who we are. And so we want to make sure that we're exporting the right stuff. In order, in order to do that, we have to have the right stuff in our hearts. And so those foundational character traits that I was talking about earlier, respect, honor, gratitude, 
wisdom, discretion, humility. Imagine if those things were not in the heart of the teacher or the parent. Then the parent would be trying to teach the kid something that they knew nothing about or something that they did not own themselves and exhibit themselves. Teaching a child about modesty would be hypocritical if we don't model and manifest our instruction. Children do have ingrown baloney detectors. They can discern hypocritical parenting. We don't want to hear, we never want to hear them say that if that is Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And it's even worse when they're talking about their parents. Those ingrown baloney detectors will go off and they will realize that we are full of baloney. We can fake them out for a season. When they're rugrats, little toddlers just moving around on the carpet, on the floor. Oh yeah, they think that we're something special and great. Probably even omnicompetent and, and omniscient because we know so much and we can do so much. But eventually as they grow old, older, they will begin to discern the disconnect between our orthodoxy, our teaching, and our orthopraxy, how we live it out. May our example clearly represent the Christ that we want them to emulate. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, As beloved children, imitate God. It's quite clear in that passage what our marching orders are. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Follow me as I follow Christ. Our lives as parents are the most potent examples that will shape the future of our children. Again, we have no other option about that. We will shape our children for good or for evil. And you know that because you had parents too. In some way, somehow, they have shaped you. You cannot get out from under the shaping influence of your parents. And so as children, we want to make sure, or our children, we want to make sure that we are modeling the message, that we are instructing them to follow. And so with that in mind, I would like to ask you a few questions about your modeling of modesty to your children. Knowing that respect, honor, gratitude, wisdom, discretion, humility, that they are the feeders of future modesty in your children's lives, how would you rate yourself on these character traits? Are you respectful? Do you show honor, like to your spouse, for example? Are you characterized as a grateful person? Are you an individual who is growing in wisdom? You show discretion or self-control. You're a humble person. How are you doing in those traits? We want our children to exhibit all of those things. But before we get to that, what if you rate yourself? And then how about your spouse? Perhaps you can ask your spouse to rate you. Hey, spouse, how do I do in respecting you, honoring you? Where would you place me as far as having a heart of gratitude for all things? In everything, Paul said, give thanksgiving. That's part of a grateful heart. Would you consider me as a person of wisdom, a person of discretion and humility? Question number two, are you modest? Jesus taught us that our fruit would reveal our hearts. By their fruit, 
you shall know them, as he said. What does your external presentation reveal about your heart? So as you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning before you go off to work or wherever it is that you go, as you move about your day, how does your external presentation reveal your heart? It does. It absolutely does reveal your heart. There is no question that by their fruit you shall know them, who they are, who they are at the level of the heart. And so the question is, are you modest? Does your externality present a, a modest person motivated by such character traits as respect and honor, gratitude, wisdom, discretion, and humility? Question number three, are you tempted to conform to your culture? How much influence does the culture have over you? Do you look like them? Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that statement or that question. Jesus looked like his culture. But the question really is, does the culture manage you in such a way that you take your marching orders from them and not God's word or not the community of faith? Do you imitate your worldly counterparts? Who are your modesty mentors? This is really getting at a, a deeper level of the question that I just asked you. Is it the movies that you watch, worldly friends, social media, or godly people? Where did you learn about modesty? Was it through a religious system? Was it the Bible? Those can be two different things, by the way. We can learn a legalistic approach to modesty, and again, that really doesn't address the heart. That is just a rote, choreographed mo modesty message where we just dress like everyone else within our legalistic system. The Bible would have a more nuanced understanding of modesty. As I've been saying here, it would also incorporate the heart motivation for why we dress the way we do. Did someone come alongside you to help you understand biblical modesty? Have you overreacted to modesty, to the modesty teaching, because of legalistic training? I do see that pendulum swing in many of my friends and people that I have counseled over the years, where they have felt oppressed inside of a legalistic system, and then they come out of that system as they grow older or as they see the light, so to speak. But as they are exiting the legalistic environment, they overshoot the gospel and they land, land in the ditch of liberality or licentiousness. They are guilty of the pendulum swinging from legalism to liberality. And so have you overreacted to modesty? Perhaps you haven't, but I think you know enough to know about religion that it does happen, and perhaps you know someone that has overreacted. They basically turned their nose up at their previous religious system, and now they are, they are living according to the dictates of the world, and their modesty men mentors are in the culture, not in God's church. Finally, what do these characteristics look like, practically speaking, in the home? Between a husband and a wife— and so go back to those foundational character traits that you want to instill in your children. Well, how are you respecting your spouse and honoring your spouse? What does gratitude, wisdom, discretion, and humility look like in your marriage?
You see, the marriage is the primary shaping influence in your children's lives as far as relationships are concerned. That is the primary relationship that they will experience more than any other two people coming together. The dad and the mom and how they interact with one another. This is more than just modesty. This is how their characters influence each other. And then, of course, whatever that is, good or bad, they are exporting that to the children. And so siblings learn how to interact with one another as they watch their parents interact with each other. These children learn how to interact with their culture again as they watch their parents. And so if the parents have just this one character trait of respect, that's going to bleed over into the children's lives. And then, how does that apply to modesty as they mature, where they're going to respect other people and not dress in such a provocative way to capture their gaze or be a temptress to another person or cause another individual to stumble because they have learned the character trait of respect and honor and discretion and wisdom and humility. To do modesty well in the home means husbands and wives must be regularly and transparently talking about this culturally relevant issue. A husband and wife are not two people, but they are one flesh. Like Christ, the husband reflects his wife, and the wife reflects her husband. It would confuse a child if the parents revealed two different modesty messages Maybe the husband believes and maybe he has a more licentious view of modesty, or maybe the wife does. And maybe the other one has a more legalistic or a different kind of modesty message. And then when the children see two messages in one flesh, well, that's delusional. Uh, that's multi-personalities. Regardless of where the split messages are, Split marriages perpetuate confusion and insecurity in the children. They don't know where to land the plane. One parent lives and thinks this way, and the other has a worldview and practice that is another way. Kids are not mature enough to understand mixed marriage messages when the parents are not in agreement about vital issues. And in this context, I'm talking about modesty as motivated from sound biblical character traits. A couple becomes one voice in the child's life by developing a unified message consistent with their hearts. Single-mindedness in marriage means both parents must have authentic conversations that delve into the core of their respective selves. If those character traits are not there, the other spouse needs to understand why. What is going on in my spouse that they don't show respect, honor, self-control, discretion, wisdom, gratitude? What stands in the place of those wonderful character traits? Husband, your wife needs to know the real you. She needs to know your victories and your struggles. She needs to understand the difference between the person you are and the one that everyone else sees. There is always a gap between who we are in our homes and how people see us out in the public space. The gap is not really the problem. The issue and the real question is, which way are we headed? Which way are we leaning? Are we leaning toward closing that gap to where we're more, more authentic both inside and outside of our homes? Or 
Are we leaning outward, growing in our hypocrisy? Now, we should give our spouse, and husband, I would appeal to you to give her all the gory details of your true self, but be appropriate. A fool will reveal his old mind, and so I'm not making a case that you should tell her everything that you've ever thought, every defiled thing that's ever wafted through your brain, across your brain. But she must have a life partner that is permitted to enter into your more personal struggles. You can't expect to address your child's heart, teaching them what to be on the inside, when you are unwilling to reveal to your spouse what is on the inside of you. Remember, we export the message. We export who we are to our children. And if you want your children to grow in respect and self-control and gratitude and honesty and transparency and integrity and humility, then we have to live that ourselves between the husband and the wife. Your wife is your best ally other than the Lord. It's incumbent on you to leverage this incredible asset. She is a gift to you. Use this means of grace from the Lord by letting her into your heart. Again, be appropriate, of course. Perhaps your marriage is not able to be this transparent at this time. There are many marriages that are that way, and I understand it. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and so I see this, and I know that many marriages have not done the work over the years, and rather drifting together into a more assimilated one-flesh union, they have drifted apart. And then when they hear something like what I am sharing here, they're thinking there is no way that we can have those transparent conversations because we haven't been that way in 10 years. I understand. Maybe you have not led her well. If that's true, then I appeal to you to make one flesh unity one of your most important priorities. It doesn't mean that you should kick the can down the road. I mean, if you have not led well over the past 10 years, don't add another year or another 10 years to that. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Lead by example. Work at being as open and as honest with your spouse as you want your child to be with you. I mean, imagine you go to your child and say, I want you to be honest with me. I want you to be transparent with me. I want, to sh- I want you to share your heart with me as we talk about what's going on inside of you. And all the while that you're making this appeal to your child, you're not doing it with your wife. You're not having that kind of conversation with your wife. That is hypocrisy. That is not modeling the message. That is asking the children to do something that you refuse to do. Remember those ingrown baloney detectors that they have? They may not be able to articulate what's going on, but it will not pass the smell test. And they will know that there is something wrong between dad and mom. And there is a mixed message happening here. They're asking me to be humble. They're asking me to be transparent and honest. They're asking me to respect one another. But I don't see that in their marriage. And so husband, lead by your Well, you are leading by your example. Make sure you're leading by a bibliocentric example. And then I want to make an appeal to the wives as well. 
For marriages to mature, both partners need to continuously press into each other to help the marriage reflect Christ and His church to their children. Now, that's not the primary reason to do that, and unfortunately, that's what happens a lot of times. Parents will work on their marriages because they want to impact their children, and that is not the primary motive. Whether you eat or drink or work on your marriage, you do all for the glory of God, regardless of what's going on in your children's lives. Unfortunately, we get that reversed and we see our children going astray, and so we want to work on our marriage because that is our self-reliant way of helping our children to grow and change. No, that's not how it should happen. We want to do right because it's right and because it glorifies God, regardless of what happens in our children's lives. But nevertheless, you do want to make your marriage reflect Christ and the church because it will influence the children. You want to make the gospel attractive to your children. Biblical attractiveness means the wife must know how her husband struggles with such things as lust and sex and sexuality and the temptation to take God's good gifts of love and reverse it into a cursed-shaped, self-serving mindset. These are part of the conversations that you have to have. I mean, we're talking about modesty here, and you can't divorce modesty from lust, sex, sexuality, and temptation, because modesty and Lust, sex, sexuality, and temptation is going to be a part of your child's life, too. I mean, one of the reasons that you will be talking to your child about modesty is so they don't fall in those traps of lust, sex, sexuality, and temptation. But if a husband and wife can't talk about those things, again, we're at this same juncture. We are being hypocritical, trying to have a conversation with our children when we cannot have the conversation in our marriage. No man's view and practice of love are precisely like the mind of Christ. Your husband, like me, is a fallen individual, and he's not purely purified inside and out, so he has distorted views of sex and sexuality and lust and temptation. Imperfection makes him an ordinary fallen man in a fallen world. Your husband is a product of Adam's race. And though he is not a helpless victim, I'm not saying that at all, but he is a depraved man nonetheless, a good discipler. And that's who you are, wife. You will resist the temptation to become emotionally entangled in the problems of the person that you're helping while trying to bring restorative care that transforms the person that you are helping. And so there has to be this biblical type of detachment from the person that you're helping. We talk to our students about this all the time in our Mastermind program. You can't jump in the swamp with them to rescue them. You have to be strong. You have to have a sturdy soul. You have to stand outside on the ledge, stand on a tree branch, stand on solid ground. You don't jump in with them and become emotionally entangled with them and their problems. No, you stand there from a mature and sturdy perspective and you reach out, give a hand, and you have to restore one that is caught. And so you have these conversations as you come alongside your husband, making sure you address the real issues and you're not complicating the problems by your own issues. Now, this means that you must think more theologically than emotionally. 
And rather than making his problems about your fears or your insecurities, make them about God's ability to restore a fellow struggler. Love your man. Help him rather than pulling away at the marriage bond. Give your children a marriage and a message that values and manifests transparency, honesty, hope, humility. Again, those are some more of those character traits. I have mentioned several along the way here. And just imagine by the time that your children are 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age, and these types of character traits are foundational and solidified in their little hearts, it will impact how they think about modesty and all the ways that you hope. It will determine their views of modesty. If your husband does not cooperate with this mission of modesty, then I appeal to you to talk to your pastor or another spiritual authority. Do all you can to close whatever gaps that exist between you and your husband. The goal here is not to bypass heart issues at all when teaching children what to look like on the outside. And so let's talk just a couple of minutes about practical modesty, and then we will wrap up. I want to address the ladies first, and then the gentlemen, I have some questions for you, and I trust that they will be instructive, insightful, and also helpful. And so ladies, what are you trying to accomplish by what you are wearing? Again, whether you eat or drink or dress, are you seeking to draw attention to God or yourself? Is your desire to make God's name great by your clothing choices? Do your clothes spread the fame of God to your family and community? I want to take a brief break here and, and uh, talk about something that I mentioned in, at the very beginning. I said I was talking about modesty, and I said I wasn't going to tell you how to dress, and I have not done that. I'm not going to make universal mandates. That would be so foolish, as I said. It would be arrogant as well. It would be naive. And I haven't done that all the way through. But I trust that what I have shared with you will steer your mind into how you should dress and how you should uh, present yourself to the world, including your children. Do you have a trusted, godly, and courageous female friend willing to speak to your clothing choices? Can you talk about the motivations of your heart pertaining to what you wear? Your clothing selections begin in your heart and not on the rack. What you wear reveals who you are. Remember what Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. That's why I've been speaking so strongly uh, in such a comprehensive way about heart motivations and these character traits that have to be present, present, they have to be resident in our hearts. Are you pursuing humility through your clothing choices? Recognize your tendencies towards self-deception and cultural pressures and peer temptations. The subtleties of self-deception tempt all of us, not just the ladies that I'm addressing here. The first step in understanding is acknowledging that it can happen to any of us. The humble person has nothing to hide, nothing to protect, nothing to fear. Her goals are to learn, to grow, to change, to mature for the glory of God. Let these gentle provocations propel you to the safety of godly counsel. And then I want to address uh, the men. Let's be honest. Lust tempts you and me. 
You're tempted toward ungodliness when it comes to the opposite sex. You may not yield to the temptations. I'm not saying that you do, not even suggesting that. But lust crouches at the door of all of our hearts. Sexual selfishness is part of our Adamic DNA. Can you talk about this universal problem that is every man's battle? To pretend it does not exist is to be naive, or maybe worse, it is to be deceptive. Humble transparency about Adamic proclivities is the first step toward exporting modesty to the next generation. Don't let your internal private struggle stay secret. Find a godly, wise, and trusted friend. Tell him the truth about the real you. Be released from the fear that you're the only one who struggles this way. You're not. Stop condoning men's meetings where every guy in the room is thinking the same thing, but nobody speaks up about their struggles. Shoot the lust elephant in the room. Kill it dead. Tell the truth. If you and your wife are willing to pursue modesty through the door of humble and contrite hearts, then you're well positioned to export the message of modesty to your children. And as your children mature, you can incrementally increase their awareness of the dangers and the pitfalls of modesty. Many parents may think, we will never agree on this kind of modesty worldview that you're presenting here. What divides us is too big. We can't talk about the simplest things. There's no way to expose our true functional identities to each other, who we are on the inside. Non-redemptive Christian marriages, which is what I just described, they're more common, uh, commonplace than redemptive ones. Sin has done more damage in marriages than the sanctifying gospel has restored. And if this is your situation, you should not be hopeless. If you are hopeless, I want you to think about those two words. Hopeless Christian. Does that sound right to you? Hopeless and Christian do not belong in the same contiguous breath. If you feel hopeless, the first thing you need to do is to repent. Your problems are not greater than God's ability to repair them. Begin the hard work of transforming your thoughts back to the redemptive power of the gospel. The Son of God died on a cross. He came out of the grave three days later. Let those gospel-saturated words course through your mind. Regardless of what your spouse does, you can have renewed thinking today. Don't be like Mary at the tomb, languishing in despair. Christ did rise, just like He said He would. And you know the message of hope. Preach it to yourself right now. You can do better than hopelessness. Perhaps your spouse will not help you export modesty to your children. And if that is so, think about this. All you need is God. The message of grace alone applies here too. If your child comes to the place of embracing modesty for the glory of God, it will be because of God's grace not because of your beautiful marriage or exceptional parenting practices. There are two ditches here. Ditch number one, not cooperating with God in exporting modesty to your children. Ditch number two, your failures are not more significant than God's power to transform a child's heart.
The first problem is presuming on the grace of God by not cooperating with Him in this great gospel adventure. And the second is one of self-righteous legalism, thinking that my mistakes are greater than God's grace. Let sound theology govern your heart. You do the best you can while always resting in the sweet assurance that God will care for you. Believe in and practice the active goodness of God in your life. May He be your animating center. What I just shared with you is part of a book that I have for you. It is a free book called Sex and uh, Temptation and Modesty. I believe that's the name. It is at lifeovercoffee.com. It's in our store. And one of the chapters that you just heard here on modesty is in that book. But there's a lot more in that book, and it is free to you. So go to lifeovercoffee.com, get that free book, and please let your friends know all about it so that they can have a copy as well. Enjoy what I just shared with you. Benefit from it. May it bring redemptive instruction and transformation into your life. And enjoy all the other chapters as well. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.